0: A reading from Exodus, then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, or worship them, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and you shall not do any work, you, your son or daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock, or the alien resident in your towns. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, but rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. Honor your father and your mother, so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or male or female slave, or ox, or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. The word of the Lord. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided, through the foolishness of our proclamation, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks desire wisdom. But we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, for God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. The word of the Lord.
1: The Holy Gospel today comes from the book of St. John, the second chapter, beginning with the 13th verse. The Passover of the Jewish people was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem In the temple, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, Jesus drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal, for your house will consume me. The Jewish people then said to him, What sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jewish people then said, This temple has been under construction for 46 years, and will you raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body. And he was raised from the dead. His disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The gospel of the Lord. Thanks be be to God. God. My dearest siblings, grace and peace to you from God in whom we live and move and have our being. Amen. Amen. Uh, You know, as Christians, and especially as Lutherans, we tend to think that we have this monopoly on the idea of grace, at least from a a theological perspective. We as Christians tend to think that uh, when Paul talks about grace in these pivotal letters of Romans and Galatians, that Paul is talking about something theologically new, something that has happened based on... Uh, this calling he has um, to to go and preach the gospel to the gentiles we tend to think that the theological concept of grace starts with jesus and is championed by paul and then of course moves on 1500 years later to luther uh, and and we also treat luther as though luther has rediscovered grace and the rest is history as they say. The truth is is that Paul is not discovering grace in Jesus or in Christianity in these letters in, in Romans and Galatians. Paul's not sharing something new with grace. In fact, Paul is sharing a part of his Jewish faith with a new community in the Gentiles. And so I want to take a couple minutes today and talk about grace. Uh, As you see in the sermon title, I'm focusing on grace as part of our Lenten series in in looking at these promises that God makes in our Old Testament readings. Uh, And the promise for this Sunday is the promise of grace. I want to spend a couple minutes uh, getting a little bit historical, which I know some of you really like and some of you kind of yawn at, understandably. Um, but I want to talk about grace in the Old Testament, especially as it relates to the Ten Commandments, which was our Old Testament reading that Jan read for us today, um, and why we as Christians miss the mark on where grace comes from in these ancient, ancient texts. And for reference, I'm going to be using the work of uh, Jewish scholar and professor, Pamela Eisenbaum, Um, who talks about this in a book she wrote called Paul Was Not a Christian. Um, Really good book. If you ever want to read more about this perspective in greater depth, I encourage you to get it. Um, What she talks about, though, is that the assumption that we make as Christians is that the Ten Commandments are these conditions for the Jewish people. And and as you've heard me say before, it's not 10 commandments, it's actually about 612 commandments. Uh, The 10 commandments are like the Bill of Rights, they're just the first 10. But again, 612 different commandments. And our assumption as Christians is that these commandments are conditions for the Jewish people, that if the Jewish people follow these commandments, then they will be blessed by God. The truth is, is that this is a Christian interpretation of these commandments. And because Christianity has become this kind of dominant religion in America, uh, this interpretation of the commandments has become the assumed interpretation of the commandments, not just amongst Christians, but amongst a lot of non-Christians as well. The only group that this is not the assumption with are with our Jewish siblings. See, Jewish people don't understand the commandments this way. They do not understand the commandments as these conditions that have to be met to cur God's favor. And to understand this a little bit more, we have to go even further back to Abraham. And lucky for us, we talked about this last Sunday without us really even knowing about it. Now, Abraham is the person for the Jewish faith. A lot of Jewish uh, people really focus on the liberating action of Moses, and that has become a source of tremendous comfort, especially as Jewish people have been ostracized and persecuted over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. But for Jewish folks, it all starts with Abraham. And if you remember from last week, we talked about the promise for a, f- a secure future that comes to Abraham. And I'm going to repeat a little bit, but, but God essentially promises Abraham that because Abraham has been a good and righteous and upstanding person, that God is going to bless Abraham and Sarah with an entire inheritance of people, an entire nation of people. And it starts with their son Isaac and goes from there to the entire Jewish tribe. God makes this promise to Abraham that he, in in Abraham's old age, God is going to bless him and Sarah with an entire posterity of people. That's what we read last week, but the part that we don't read in that text is that Abraham believes God. God makes this promise to Abraham, says, I'm going to do this for you because you are a good person. And Abraham believes God when God makes this promise. And then the text goes on to say that God counted it to Abraham as righteousness, Simply because Abraham believes God's promise, God counts it to him as righteousness. And then God extends, not only to Abraham, but to all of his uh, uh, children and children's children and children's children's children. And everyone that would come from him, his entire line, God extends to all of them grace. That they are God's People that God will always be there with them, that God will always love them. The very definition of grace, simply because Abraham believed that God would keep God's promise. What the Ten Commandments are, and what all of the commandments end up being for Jewish people, is their response to that grace. They don't have to do any of these commandments to earn God's grace. They already have God's grace. They are already God's chosen people. The commandments are just simply their response to that grace. And if you look at our Ten Commandments, a lot of people don't notice this. We we treat them so much like rules. But when you look at the Ten Commandments, they are entirely relational. You can break them down into two categories. They either have to deal with a person's relationship with God... Or a person's relationship with their community. And this is the case for all of the commandments. And what this boils down to then is that that all of the Jewish people have this grace from God because of Abraham's righteousness. And then their response to that grace is to live in loving relationship with God and with each other. That's it. Because of the grace given to the Jewish people, they then respond by simply loving God and loving one another. I'm hoping this sounds familiar to you. This is Jewish theology that I'm describing to you. Not Christian theology, but Jewish theology. This is how Jewish people understand grace in their own texts, which we have adopted. And frankly, I think it's quite beautiful. I think it can open our eyes to the richness of Jewish theology and our Jewish siblings around us. And I hope it opens our eyes to how much of this we have inherited as Christians. See, the problem for us as Christians is that we have taken these texts of grace and responding to grace, and we have turned them into rules. I mean, think about the Ten Commandments. If you look at the Hebrew, nowhere does it say Ten Commandments. That is a label that Christians have put into this section of the Bible. We have called them the Ten Commandments. We have turned them into rules, into conditions that people have to meet in order to cur God's love and God's favor. And we don't just do this with Old Testament texts. We do this with all of the stuff about grace in the New Testament too. And in our own texts, in our own faith, we have taken God's grace and we have turned it into conditions. We have said that we either have to believe a certain way. We have to accept certain stuff. We have to be good people in order to cur God's favor. We have turned our own texts about grace and response into rules into conditions. And I think there are two reasons why we do this. The first is power, simply put, power. You think about it, lawmakers and law enforcers have power. We live in a society where we need laws and we need people to enforce those laws. And and we, as members of society, we give lawmakers and law enforcers a certain amount of power to do this. And this can be used in, in really good ways. We need laws and we need enforcers, but it can also be used in very abusive ways. And this is what we're seeing with, with Jesus in the temple when he goes in and, and destroys all of this property inside of the Jewish temple What's going on here is that the leaders of the Jewish temple who are part of the the Sadducee group, Caiaphas, who we hear about at Jesus' execution, uh, the leaders of the Jewish temple have turned this process of coming and atoning for one's sins, not as, as something of response to God's grace, but as conditions that have to be met. They've turned it into a system where these Jewish leaders can accumulate massive wealth off of people who are simply coming to respond to God's grace. They've also done this to create a relationship with Rome, to pay off Rome and stay in Rome's favor. So there's this whole imperialistic element to what's going on too. They have come uh, become completely consumed by the power that they have in creating and enforcing these laws in the Jewish temple. And Jesus recognizes this immediately. Zeal for his father's house consumes him and he goes in there in anger and starts flipping tables and turning over money and creating a whip and driving out the people and the cattle because they've completely missed God's grace. The second reason I think we tend to take grace and its response and turn it into conditions, into rules, is simply that we as people today, we don't believe in grace. At least I don't think we do. I don't think we as Christians believe in grace. And my evidence for this is the society in which we live. Because I think if if enough of us truly believed in grace, our society would look like that. And I think our society operates on conditions. I think we've been raised to treat our personal relationships and our businesses and business in general, politics, so many different things. We've been raised to treat these as a quid pro quo deal. We are raised to believe more in in victory and strength than we are vulnerability, doubt, uncertainty, intimacy, and compassion. Our justice systems in this country are far more centered, far more centered on retribution than they are on restoration and rehabilitation. And it's no wonder that our faith has become centered on doctrine and dogma, on who's in and who's out, on individual salvation and future destinations, instead of being a faith that is so centered on grace, so centered on the fact that God just simply loves God's people, instead of being centered on the fact that we as people are created in such diverse and beautiful ways and to believe that God just simply loves us just as we are, that God sees the worth, the divine worth in every single human. Our faith misses this so, so often, and it makes sense, because our faith has become a reflection of our society rather than our society becoming a reflection of our faith. Today's Lenten promise is that God promises us grace. It's there. That grace is there. God loves us. The end. Every single one of us. We have salvation, not because we believe the right way, not because we act the the right way, just simply because God loves us. It's there. But like Abraham We need to trust in God's promise. We need to believe that God actually loves us this way. We need to believe that the cross is so powerful that it transcends our worthiness and our unworthiness, our actions and our inactions, our perfections and our imperfections. We need to believe that God just loves us. And there's nothing we can do or not do to ever change that. And so for this third week of Lent, I would like to invite all of you to reflect on grace. I want you to think about whether you truly trust in God's grace and God's love in your life. I want you to reflect on whether or not you believe that God just simply loves you, just as you are right now. And nothing will ever, ever separate you from that love. And I think one of the best ways to reflect on this is to consider your response. Consider whether you respond to God's grace in your life. Or is your faith more centered on trying to meet certain conditions, trying to be the right person, trying to believe in the right thing? When God's grace is central in our lives, when it is the thing that we always fall back on, I'm telling you, we can't help but respond to that grace in love and in service. That's how our actions as Christians are supposed to be. And this is one of those things where it starts with us personally. So I want you all to reflect on this, and I want it to be a personal thing. I want you to reflect on this and I want you in your own personal life to try to allow God's grace to fill you up. I want you to try to focus on how much God truly loves you. And if you can't get there, if it's not working for some reason, that's okay. That just means you have some work to do work in in believing that you are worthy of love. And if this can work out for you personally, if you can allow God's grace to fill you up so that you can't help but respond to that grace by loving others, if we can do that, if you can do that, then I truly think that our societies and our systems will follow. Amen.